welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. A human capital management company, as part of a branding campaign, asked on Twitter, what are you, hashtag, working for? Most answers didn't include a paycheck. Teaching team member Caleb Click continues the series Imago Dei with this sermon entitled Image Bearing, Work, and Creation, which covers Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, and chapter 2, verse 15. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning, y'all. If you have your Bibles, open up with me to Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26. And if you're going, haven't we looked at this text before? Uh, You're right. Uh, This is the text that we have been coming back to over and over and over again in this series, the one that you may be getting sick of at this point. But, But here's the reason we're back. There are things in this passage, there are things in this text that if we do not grasp, We will miss the purpose for which God not only created us, but redeemed us. And what we're going to be looking at today, it is something that is vital for you. Because if you miss this, you will miss the reality that in your life there is actually nothing you do that is not significant to God's eternal kingdom. Here's what it says, starting in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is God's word. Let me pray. Father, we come to you this morning, Lord, as a people who are hungry. Lord, maybe we don't even realize that we're hungry, Lord. We've been feeding at all the wrong tables and eating all the wrong foods, but Lord, we need one food more than any other, and that is the food that is offered here in the Word of God. Would you give us a right hunger, and would you give us the faith so that we would eat of this as those who have seen and beheld the beauty of the gospel in Jesus Christ? Would you work now in Jesus' name? Amen. There's a lot of things that we do really, really well as American evangelicals. But there's a couple things, there's a couple things we really struggle with. One of those is this. I do not think we have an adequate framework for understanding the significance of our work as we live in this physical world that God has made. You know, when I came to Christ in college, I was blessed with this rich toolbox of resources. Because of the family I'd grown up in, because of the churches that I had been a part of, because of the people who were discipling me, I had all of these resources for the Christian life. But for some reason, if I opened up that toolbox and I began to sort through the tools, in the section marked work and God's creation, there was absolutely nothing there. And if you were to ask me in those early years, Caleb, what's the significance of your work? You know, the thing you spend 99% of your life doing I wouldn't have had a very good answer. 
Because what had been communicated to me, what I had unconsciously absorbed was this idea that the reason that Jesus saved me, the reason the church existed, it was simply this. We were to join with Jesus in the saving of souls through the preaching of the gospel. Now, I want to be clear. That is an incredibly important part of the church's mission. But in that idea, work, work is just an incidental thing. Work is just something that we have to do to get by as we live in this fallen, broken world. Work, it's a necessity that will one day pass away and ultimately has no ultimate significance. And when as a college kid, I started trying to work through what I was supposed to do with the rest of my life, something that I think every college kid at some point should at least wrestle with, that was the evaluative framework which I brought to that process. As I begin to look down each of those individual paths, being a, going in the Marine Corps, being a lawyer, being a college professor, or heaven forbid, becoming a pastor, because that was the one thing I didn't want to do, uh, the question that I was asking was, with the gifts and talents that God has given me, which one of those career choices, which one of those paths gives me the greatest platform for sharing the gospel? Which one enables me to influence the most people for the sake of Christ? And if you asked me uh, if my work was supposed to be excellent, I would have said, well, of course it's supposed to be excellent. But not because there was value in work done well, but because it gives more credibility to my witness for the gospel. I had a toolbox, but for some reason when it came to work, I had absolutely nothing to work with. And so I had questions. Questions that I don't think I was the only one asking. Questions like, does my work, this thing I spend so much of my life doing, does it have any eternal significance? Does my work matter? This is why we have to come back to Genesis 1. Because what Genesis 1 says is your work and mine, it matters more than we could ever imagine. Because the God of the Bible, the one that we see from Genesis to Revelation, he's not a God who's concerned only for the redemption of souls, though he certainly cares for that. He is a God who is concerned with the redemption of all things. And your work and my work, it is an integral, not incidental part of that. It is a part of what God has created us and redeemed us in Christ as image bearers to do. Jesus hasn't just redeemed our souls through the forgiveness of sins. He hasn't just redeemed our bodies through the resurrection from the dead. Jesus has redeemed our very work. So that as those who are made in the image of God, we would labor in the midst of his creation as servant kings who are confident of this. That while the world may look at our work as insignificant, and while it may feel futile to us in Jesus Christ, that work, it is never in vain. You see it right here in Genesis 1. We labor by God's design as servant kings. And this is the point I'm going to spend almost all of today's sermon on. God creates man and he makes him in his image in verse 26. And the very first thing God says is what? Let him have dominion. 
over the birds of the air and over the fish of the sea, over every living thing that moves on the earth. God goes through every sphere of creation that we've been given in the previous days of the week that have happened in Genesis 1, and he says, every single thing that you see, I'm placing it in man's hands. Every square inch, I'm entrusting to his care. He will rule over this, and then God goes still further. It says that he makes man, male and female, after his image. And then in verse 28, it says, and he blessed them. Not male only, but male and female. And not Adam and Eve only, but all of humanity in them. And it says, he said to them this, be fruitful and multiply. And don't miss this word, fill the earth and subdue it. Literally, harness every resource I am giving you and develop it to its fullest potential. And then using the very same word he used in verse 26, only now he's issuing it as a command. God says, and have dominion over it. If you're an ancient Israelite, hearing those words for the first time, you've just been dropped into a totally alien foreign world. Because the God and the creation that have been described here is unlike anything you would have found in ancient Near Eastern mythology. If you explored the ancient Near Eastern religions, their concept of creation, it was not anything like this. It was that they were gods who inhabited the earth, and those gods, they had a war, and the accidental byproduct of that war was they created everything that we see, touch, taste, and feel. And a part of that accidental creation was man. And when the gods accidentally made man, they decided, well, we got to have some use for him. And so man became the slave of the gods, a sort of janitor who did all the dirty work the gods didn't want to have to do, someone that the gods used and abused at their pleasure. That's not Genesis 1, is it? Genesis 1 says creation is not the accidental byproduct of a war between the gods. Genesis 1 says everything that you see came into the existence by the power of one God who is sovereign over all, who spoke everything that exists into being, including those things that the pagan religions claim are gods. And he rules and reigns over every bit, and man is not an accidental byproduct of that creation. Man is actually the purposefully made and designed pinnacle of every single thing God has made. God looks at his creation and he cherishes it and he says, it is good, it is good, it is good. But what does he say when he places man like the final puzzle piece right in the center? It is very good. The God of Genesis 1, he doesn't treat people like a tyrant treats his subjects. He treats them like a father treats child. And from the very first chapter of the Bible, you are confronted with a God who is absolutely unlike anything else in the world around us. Because what is this God like? He's a God who is sovereign over all and yet in love and in mercy comes near to his creation, who gives and gives extravagantly to his beloved. You see it in God's design for humanity. 
He designed man to rule as one united body under one head, God himself. And in that role, in that role to subdue, to harness, to develop the earth. Right here, baked into creation, is the reality that part of your design as a human being, it's not just to harvest crops or to walk around and pull fruit off of trees. It's to develop technology. It's to build cities. It's to create art. It's to take all of this that God has made and to mine it for its inherent potential so that when God returns in the form of Jesus Christ, you would hand to him something better than he even gave to you. That's the idea. God intends us to subdue all these things, which means from creation, before the fall, you were designed to work. Work is not a byproduct of the fall. Work is part of what you were designed for. Now, and this is where we start to screw this up, because the language here, dominion and subduing, that has a negative connotation in our ears, doesn't it? I mean, I hear those words... And I hear it as a fallen man living in a fallen world surrounded by fallen men and women. Which means my experience of dominion and subduing is what? Negative. But how, how does Genesis 1 want us to read those words? Is it through the lens of fallen men and women? Or is it through the lens of those who have been made in the image of God? and who in their dominion and subduing are supposed to reflect that God. Which means the dominion and subduing we are to reflect is a dominion and subduing that we find in God himself. And who's this God? He's the one who in creation and redemption labors for his glory but not only that, he labors for the flourishing of every single thing that he has made. A God who sacrificially serves and who gives and gives extravagantly. That's the kind of labor God is calling us to. He doesn't intend us to sit back on our haunches and glut ourselves on his creation. He intends us to care for it. To rule over it as kings of a very specific kind, servant kings who seek not only their own interests but the interests of others, kings who look a whole lot like Jesus Christ. And if you don't think that's what he's talking about, all you have to do is turn to the very next chapter. God puts man in a garden, and it says he does it for this purpose, chapter 2, verse 15. Why? To work it and keep it. Is that the language of vicious plundering? Or is that the language of loving care? God designed us as one united body under one head to labor in the midst of his creation as servant kings. And it's with this explicit purpose. Verse 28, to be fruitful and multiply and fill. Notice that language again. Fill the earth. What's God's purpose? It's that through humanity, God's divine image bearers, as they are fruitful and multiply, it's that through humanity they would flood the earth with the gracious presence of God. 
so that what starts in a garden would spread over every square inch of God's creation and more and more and more God's glory would be proclaimed to the heavens and every single bit of creation, this good thing that God has made, it would be developed into all of its glorious fullness. That's God's purpose. You know, if you want an analogy, think of it this way. Think of God as a father in creation as an infant child. You know, when a parent looks at an infant child, you delight in that child. You look at it and you see it in all of its beauty and all of its glory and all of its wonder, but if you're a normal parent, do you want that child to remain as an infant forever? No. What do you want? You want to see that child grow. You want to see all the potential that is within them develop so that one day they would blossom into everything that God intends them to be. And what God is saying in Genesis 1 is man is the means through which that flourishing and growth will come into all of creation. You see it in the structure of the Bible. The Bible starts in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 in a garden with man placed in the middle of it. And where's the Bible end? It ends in a city, sitting amidst the new heavens and a new earth where the kings of the world are entering into the gates of that city and in their hands it says they are carrying, Revelation 21, the glory of the nations. Have you ever thought about what that is? It's the fruit of God's command to subdue the earth for the glory of God and the good of his creation that is called for right here in Genesis 1.28. The labor of God's people now made a part of the eternal new heavens and the new earth. Which means that mission, mission is not just about the redemption of souls, though it's certainly part of it. Because God's mission doesn't start in Genesis 3. God's mission starts right here in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. And it has in view the redemption of all things. Which means our work matters. This has implications, doesn't it? I'll give you just two this morning. One, it's that work is essential to human flourishing. Our experience of work is as people who live in a fallen world. It's as people who have experienced the thorns and the thistles where labor, as those who live in a world where we're no longer in perfect harmony with it, but instead find ourselves often in opposition to it, where, where labor is hard and sweat-inducing and back-breaking, and sometimes it feels like an absolute failure all of our experience of it, it has changed. But notice this, our experience of work has changed. But according to Genesis 1, our need of it has not. You were designed for work. All over the world, in common grace, people are more and more beginning to acknowledge this. I'll give you two quick examples. If you decide to go read about the state of the criminal justice system here in the United States, one of the questions that people are beginning to ask is this, why is it that when someone's convicted of a felony and sent to prison, why is it when they get out they're so much more likely to repeat offend? Why is it that they go to jail and don't get better but seem to get worse? 
And one of the reasons, it's a complex question with a complex answer, but one of the reasons they think is this. It's because when people are released from prison, we're not actually setting them free. Because when they walk out of those prison doors, their resume will always carry one word, felon. Which means the possibility of meaningful work shrinks. Which means people who were already struggling before they went to prison now struggle even more when they get out. And as those deprived of meaningful work, what they found is that the rates of depression amongst released inmates skyrockets. And so also does violent behavior even among people who were nonviolent before they went in. One of the reasons, one of them, is because we've denied them something essential to human flourishing. The second example will probably hit closer to home, retirement. We live in a world and in a culture that idolizes retirement. We take everything we have and we will sacrifice and scrimp and save all so that we can get to this point where we can sit back and do what we want, when we want, how we want. We want to play golf, we want to go to the beach, we want to read books, and we don't want to do anything that resembles work ever again, and yet here is the dirty, seedy underbelly of retirement. Do you know when your happiness peaks in retirement if you don't give yourself to some kind of meaningful work in that vocation? It peaks within four months. Do you know what happens after four months? Rates of depression rise 40% higher than the normal population. Your chances of developing a physical illness rises by 60%. Why? Because while there are times when we have to slow down, we were not designed to stop working. Work is a part of what God created you to do. The second implication is this. There's good work and there's bad. Genesis 1 says work that is good is work that is done to the glory of God and that is done for the good of all that he has made. That's good work. And this is where everything has gone so terribly wrong, isn't it? Because what's happened? When Adam and Eve fell and plunged all that God had made into the consequences of sin, we as humanity, we lost much of the dominion that we once had. But we didn't stop subduing, did we? You see this even in Genesis 4. Cain kills Abel. God casts him from his presence and sends him east of Eden. And Cain's descendants immediately begin to do all sorts of subduing. They create music. They create weapons, technology. They build cities. They're subduing the earth, but what's the problem? They've removed God's created design from his created purpose. Instead of laboring as one united people under one head, we now labor as divided people who when we look at our brothers and sisters and we look at others made in God's image, we don't see co-heirs of the blessing. We see competitors for the same resources. And so we treat them as a threat. We labor for glory. 
But we don't labor for God's glory. We labor for whose? Our own. And what is the consequence? While we are fruitful and we have multiplied what is spread across the earth and filled it, it's not God's gracious presence. It is sin and sorrow and death. Because when you remove God's design from God's purpose, the result is not blessing. It's curse. And it is a curse that we would live under still except for one thing. The God who so loved this world that he created the first Adam he is a God who so loved this fallen, broken world. He sent a second Adam, even his very son, to bear the curse of the fall so that you and I, who deserve only the curse, we could be restored to the blessing of Genesis 1.28. That's Jesus. Jesus is the true image of God. He's the servant king that Adam was always intended to be but never was. Jesus is the one who says, if you will come to me, I will reconcile you to the Father. I will restore everything that is broken. I will reconcile you to your God in heaven so that there is no barrier between you and him anymore and you don't ever need to fear condemnation again. I will reconcile you to your brothers and sisters so that people who were divided and saw themselves as competitors would once more see themselves as co-heirs of the same blessing, united under one head, even Jesus Christ. But then... There's a peace that we seem to forget in Jesus' gospel invitation. He doesn't just promise to reconcile us to those two things. He promises to reconcile us to our role in creation. And while we may miss it, the Bible doesn't. Because what do you find littered all through the scriptures, but especially in the New Testament? This repeated refrain, God has placed all things under the feet of the crucified, resurrected, and ascended Jesus. Have you ever wondered why that's there? God, God is pointing to Genesis 1.28 and saying the dominion that Adam lost, that is a dominion that in Christ has been restored and that is now his exclusive possession, and here is the wonder of the gospel, he now gives it to his people. I look at just one verse, Ephesians 1, verses 22 to 23. It says, And God, he, put all things under Jesus' feet. There's dominion. And he gave him, Jesus, as the head over all things to who? church, to you and to me, those who lost everything in the fall, Jesus is given to the church so that once again we would have it. And then it says this, which is his body, one united humanity reflecting the image of God, the fullness of him who fills all in all. 
Does that language sound familiar to you? Because it should. Because that's the language of Genesis 1. Be fruitful and multiply and what? Fill the earth. What has Jesus done? Jesus has restored us as God's people to the image of God so that we would once more labor as servant kings in the midst of creation. So that no matter what we are doing, no matter how insignificant it may feel, those things, they are no longer matters of insignificance, but rather they are so significant that they will have a place in the new heavens and the new earth. It doesn't matter if you spend your days raising, screaming kids and cleaning out diapers. It doesn't matter if you're sweeping floors or you're crunching numbers in the back room in some back office or if you are arguing cases in front of a judge. If you are laboring in Christ as one of those who has been made a part of his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all, and in your little pocket of the world you are bringing order out of chaos even as God did in creation, then God has made you a part of something infinitely greater than yourself, the redemption of all things through Jesus Christ. And here's what's beautiful. All that labor, it is never, ever in vain. We don't just labor as servant kings in Christ. We labor in confidence because we don't rest in the hands of the second of the first Adam anymore who could lose everything. We rest in the arms of the second Adam, who conquered death and who now holds all things and who guarantees us that whatever labor we do in him, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we do not ever do it in vain. I'll close with one story. A story that I'm stealing from Tim Keller because that's what we as pastors do. Keller, in his book, Every Good Endeavor, he shares a short story by J.R.R. Tolkien called Leaf by Niggle. And the story is simply this. It's the story of a man named Niggle who's a painter. And one morning, Niggle wakes up and he has in his mind this vision of a painting that he feels as though he has to paint. It's the one thing that God has put him on the earth to do. It is this vision of a leaf and that leaf on a tree and that tree in the midst of a great and glorious land unlike anything he has ever seen. And Niggle wants with everything in him to take that picture, that vision, and to put it down on canvas. And so he paints and he paints and he labors and he labors, but... As so often happens in our lives, things start to get in the way. He's a perfectionist, and so he's constantly dissatisfied with his work, and so he keeps returning to this one particular leaf. He's got a compassionate heart, and so when his neighbors come to his door with need, even though he's painting, he has a hard time turning them away, and so he keeps going off and caring for them. Until one day, after years of labor, Niggle dies. And all he has managed to complete is one single leaf. And as Niggle passes into the next life, he begins to weep. Because he looks back at his life and he feels like, God, you put me here for one reason and I have failed to accomplish even that. 
but as the train carries him towards heaven. Nigel lifts up his eyes and he looks out the window. And he sees something that sends a stab of joy through his heart in such a way that it takes his mourning and it banishes it in the same way the light banishes night. Because there outside the window is his leaf. And it's hanging on his tree. And it is standing in the midst of the country that he envisioned only now. It's not a picture on a painting, but something real and tangible and vibrant and more glorious than he ever could have imagined. And Nigel falls to his knees and he lifts up his hands and he weeps tears, not of sorrow, but of joy. And he says, it is a gift. Because the world, the world may have forgotten Nigel and his leaf, God didn't. And in the real world, the one that will remain in a new heavens and a new earth, there Niggle's leaf was. Finished, perfected, and eternal. As Keller puts it, a part of the true reality that would continue to live and be enjoyed for eternity. That's our hope in Christ. God in Jesus Christ, he has not just redeemed our souls through the forgiveness of sins. He's not just redeemed our bodies through the resurrection from the dead. He's redeemed our work so that we would labor once again as servant kings, reflecting the one who so served us. And we would do so not as those who lack confidence, but instead as those who know that our work in him, it is never in vain. Because we don't rest in the arms of the first Adam. We rest in the arms of the second. And as Nigel said, it is a gift. Let's pray. Gracious Father, Lord, you have bestowed on us riches beyond our comprehension. And you have given us in Jesus one whose salvation runs deeper than anything that we could ever know. Lord, would you take these realities, the way you use our work as a part of the redemption of all things, the way, Lord, you take even these seemingly insignificant parts of our lives, and Lord, you use them in ways that are of eternal significance. Lord, would you give us eyes to see all those things, to understand the full weight of the gift of the gospel, but not only that, Lord, to embrace it with all of our hearts and our souls and our lives. And would you do this now? In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.